Hi, everybody. Good to be standing up here again. That's very good. Um, if you had a bulletin last week, it was announced that David Horrell would be preaching in our series on Galatians. And now you find it's not dear David, it's me. And uh, so if you're really disappointed, get someone to pray for you afterwards, okay? <laughs> so be good. Now the reason for the change is that uh, we, we've been enjoying the series in Galatians and we'll pick that up again, but we were just aware of the fact that we're heading towards some change, the, the, the biggest one being moving to the school, and that we haven't actually preached into that. Uh, we haven't tried to align it with scripture particularly, although we feel we have good reason for doing what we're doing. So this is what I'm attempting to do this morning. Uh, it's to relate the changes that are taking place. You've all had a letter. I think there's just one person, a couple of people here who haven't had a letter, and they'll get one later. Uh, but just giving you um, some reasons why we're doing things. But um, I've entitled uh, the message today, Catching the Vision, Facing the Challenge. Catching the Vision, Facing the Challenge. And it's particularly about our move to Briary School, but there'll be other issues that interrelate to that. So it's a time for change. And for some people, that can be very exciting. Uh, they don't like staying in one place too long. It's generally younger people are keen for change. Uh, and they find that challenging because with change comes some demands in one way or another. And they're, they're looking forward to the challenge of the change. Um, others might find it daunting and unsettling. And I guess that would be the older age range. Sorry? We are. We'll talk, we'll talk to you about that, Roy. Yeah, yeah, we've got weeks to go yet. We'll talk to you about that, Roy, certainly. Okay. Yeah, for some people, it's daunting and unsettling. And as I said, I think that's often more the older uh, people uh, who, are, who are involved. We get more settled when we're older, and change can be more difficult. Um, another thing it can be is bewildering, if you don't know why we're doing it. You can see, well, I can see that what we're doing, but I, I'm not sure why we're doing it. Why do, we need, why do we need all this change? So it can be bewildering, and uh, it can be costly in terms of our emotions, our time, uh, and our money. Often change involves those things. And for some people, no matter what the, the program is, it's too fast. Okay, uh, we can go to the school, but aren't we taking it a bit too fast? So you may identify with some of those feelings, I, I don't know. But um, moving to the Briary School for our Sunday meeting um, is probably the biggest change that this church will have experienced since its formation in 1995. Some of you might have been saved here. Uh, and this is the only expression of church and church building uh, that you know of. Uh, others of us have been um, worshipping and meeting in schools, usually because there was no other premises available. How many of you have, have, have been in a school? Okay, there's quite a few. So you're old hands at it, all right? Um, however... 
you might have thought that was over. And when Joe and I walked in here 10 years ago, we thought we should be carrying a load of stuff, but we're not. Um, and it seemed quite so strange that we could actually come in and get on. And now since I've been playing the drums, what a luxury just to sit at the drums and I, I bring a few bits and pieces with me, but I don't have great boxes of drums and things to cart around. So having our own building is a relative luxury. And um, we've made it more luxurious, haven't we? We've got nice soft chairs, got nice heating, double glazing. We've made ourselves comfortable. Good. And uh, that's compared to using a school building where we have to transport equipment uh, there, probably earlier than we would normally come out, set it all up, have our meeting, take it all down and take it away again. Uh, and that has to be done week after week after week. So this is a relative luxury. And just thinking about the gathering everything up and moving it on reminded me of, of the Israelites in the wilderness. And uh, I'm going to read from Exodus 40, uh, verse 34. Um, you don't have to necessarily look it up in the scriptures. but um, And um, if you know, you'll know the story well that um, uh, Moses led the children of Israel into the desert, into Sinai. And uh, they were a nomadic people. They had their tents, they had their livestock, they had all their bits and pieces, their cooking utensils and so on. And uh, after Sinai, uh, the Lord showed Moses that he, he was to build a tabernacle, like a very posh tent uh, for God to dwell in. And many of you know how the tabernacle is constructed, but there was an inner holy of holies, and then a courtyard, and very elaborate curtains all round, uh, lots of fancy things. And it was made, as far as God was concerned and what he told Moses, it was made according to the heavenly pattern. It was very special. So here we have this amazing tent, uh, made, embroidered with all sorts of finery uh, and so on. Incidentally, the Holy of Holies uh, held the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites would be ranged in their families all round uh, this tent, this tabernacle. But then we read, um, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up a curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Good, we're settled. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and a fire was in, it, in the cloud by night and in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels. Having got settled, having set up the tabernacle, I, I don't think the cloud lifting was terribly welcome. Do you? We have to pack up their tents, roll everything up, all their utensils, load them onto the donkeys or camels or whatever. We're off again, we're off again, it's all unsettled, and so on. So it just reminded me. Um, somebody estimated that there were 2.3 million people who left Egypt 
and the Israelites. You're only told about the men, but somebody have extrapolated that amongst women and children. That includes women and children. So it's a lot of people to break camp and to move on. So that was, I just thought that was a parallel. So to one degree or, or another, we are settled and we are comfortable, aren't we? We're comfortable here. So why move? Well, God is on the move. God is always on the move. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to physically move a build to, from one building to another. But God is always taking us on in his purposes. There's yet more of, that he will reveal to us and encourage us to move in as the people of God. We've only got to read the scriptures and look at some characters, look at the early church, and we say, yes, we've got somewhere to go. We, we, we need to be following the Lord and hearing, hearing from God. The key word in the Great Commission is go. Uh, you know, no doubt, the, the words of the Great Commission. Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth, and uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything to, uh, to teaching them everything uh, I have told you to observe and surely I'm with you to the end of the age but the word is go if the Israelites uh, if sorry if the church had stayed in Jerusalem um, not many people would have got converted but the church was scattered often by persecution but they had this message in their head we are to go and as we go Jesus will be with us. Now, in the school, there is a sense in which we will be nearer the community than we are here because, in a sense, we'll be on their territory. The school is part of that estate and they would own that. They would own that school. Many of their children would have gone there. They would have visited it to collect their children or to various functions. So I believe more than we are here. This is our territory, right? This is us, and they've got to come to our territory. But we have an opportunity to go to their territory. I think that's quite important. I wonder if at any time they will say, wow, the church has come to us. We haven't got to go to the church. The church has come to us. That's a practical reason uh, why we want to move. But the main reason is we believe that God has spoken. God has spoken to us. So how did we arrive at this point. Well, when um, Joe and I joined the church almost 10 years ago, where have those years gone? I've, incredible, isn't it? Um, Graham Hall was the one who set it all up and he kind of gave me a, a remit to come here and part of it was that I was to identify and raise up younger leaders who would succeed, David and myself, and uh, be a, a younger generation of leaders. Um, unfortunately, at the time, uh, there were no, no younger people who had the potential uh, for being trained uh, into leadership. And um, we, we used to meet with the other New Frontiers leaders in East Kent, usually once a month, and we're still meeting in different ways. That still goes on. But it was at the time when... Uh, Broadstairs was being planted and there was talk about people going from Canterbury to Broadstairs and other churches being invited to contribute to the church plant and 
in the middle of that, I said, we've been trying to attract young people. We're not doing it. And I believe unless there is a deliberate plant into this church of younger people, it's not going to happen. And there was a kind of acknowledgement of that and some discussion and prayer. And Steve and Jenny's name came up. And as a result of that, I mean, everybody seemed to have a God moment. The light came on. And they were approached to come and be part of this church. Uh, they were with City Church, Canterbury, although they still lived here in Herne Bay. And it was a great surprise to them, I think. But they, they sought God and they agreed to come. And that was wonderful. That was wonderful. And uh, I think it's nearly six years ago that they began to attend here. Uh, and um, right at the outset, we recognised that Steve had the potential to be a church leader. And others outside the church too who knew Steve from City and so on. That he had the potential uh, to um, be, be trained to be uh, a church leader. And um, uh, he, so that he could relate uh, to a younger generation outside the church. And of course, very early on they established Coffee and Chaos, our parent and toddler group. And uh, there were many younger mums and children coming in every Friday. And Steve and Jenny would develop relationships with them. They've also encouraged us to use this building more uh, for the community. Uh, so that's very important. But um, Steve's potential for eldership was recognised. And right from the outset, uh, David and I invited Steve to come to the elders' meetings, inviting him to make contributions, giving him responsibility as time went on. And of course, last September, uh, he became an elder. But I want to make it very clear, Steve is not an elder to maintain the status quo. Steve is an elder being part of a younger generation uh, so that we can create an environment in this church that is uh, acceptable and attractive to younger generations. So Steve, in, in a sense, he should be the catalyst for that. Generations that can relate to us. Now, of course, the, the gospel is always relevant to every, each and every generation. We're not suggesting here that in order to meet this generation, to understand the culture, that we have to water down the gospel, that we have to make it easier for people to become Christians. Far from it. And, uh, but the gospel has to be contextualised. There's the posh word. The gospel has to be contextualised. You see, Jesus contextualised the gospel in the sense that the Son of God came as a Jew, lived among the Jews, spoke as the Jews, followed the customs of the Jews, and he was the Word become flesh. And although there were those who rejected his teaching, nevertheless, he was understood by people in his generation because he spoke, he spoke their language. And uh, so it's important that it's contextualised. But Paul also contextualised uh, the, the gospel, but he did not water it down. If you've been following um, Galatians, you will know that certainly in the early chapters, it's all about Paul being incensed about people who have tampered with the gospel. They've, they've diluted it by adding to it. 
you might remember that there were people who were saying, yes, we need to believe in Jesus to be saved, but we also need to be circumcised. We, we mustn't drop this Jewish custom. And Paul said, if you do that, you're wasting your time. It's no gospel at all. If you add something to the work of Jesus, then it's no gospel at all. Of all people, Paul was very jealous of the gospel. But um, he says this in 1 Corinthians. I've got little tabs in my Bible. I don't know how much it's going to help, but anyway. He says this. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. In other words, he put aside his own preferences, his own culture maybe, in order to win people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, although, my, although myself not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So that's about contextualising the gospel, being able to relate to the people that you want to share it with. We see in the Bible that when God wants to make a move, when God wants to maybe help his people in some way, very often he raises up a new leader. That would be obvious uh, with Moses. There are these people trapped in Egypt, not able to leave, in slavery. How's God going to do it? Well, he chooses Moses, who had been brought up in the court of Egypt as an Egyptian, but also recognised himself as a Hebrew. And although reluctant at first, God was able to use him uh, to lead the people uh, out of Egypt and through the Promised Land. He was a magnificent leader through all those travels in the desert. And Moses is highly revered by the Jews today. But there came a time when there needed to be a younger leader. And it was, in fact, Joshua who eventually led the children of Israel into the Promised Land. We could think of Gideon, that God spoke to Gideon because the Midianites were oppressing uh, God's people. And God chose uh, um, Gideon to raise up an army uh, to defend the people of God. And um, I feel that is, it is significant that the year, and it would be a year ago last May, when uh, Graham Hall was um, preaching about church membership and commitment, that he saw a plant pot on the, the side there, and I felt he spoke prophetically, saying, if you want to grow, if you're going to grow as a church, you need a bigger plant pot. But it's significant that in that same year, Steve uh, becomes a full elder. That's important. He spoke prophetically. Um, last January, Andy Moyle, who will be invited to come and do a church growth seminar, um, he, you remember he came on the Saturday and he talked quite a lot about being a friendly church and we're applying much of that uh, in these days. But as soon as Andy walked in this room, when there were hardly any people here, he looked and he said, this building's not big enough for you. If you want to grow, you need a bigger building. That was almost the first thing he said when he came. 
So we believe that God has been speaking through his people. Now what about that? So this is the message, this is the prophetic word. But what about moving in? What about changing? What about making the changes? Well, when the Israelites came to the edge of the promised land for the first time, you know that they rebelled and God sent them back into the, into the wilderness until that rebellious generation died out. But if we think about the first time, God commanded the, the people through Moses to send spies into the land so that they would know what they were up against. Uh, God had promised them the land. God had, there was no issue here like spy out the land and if it's too tough we won't go. No, God had promised them the land. He just wanted them to know what the odds were. He'd promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, and it was that, but, but there were some other things as well. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read from Numbers 13. Quite a longish passage, but... Uh, because it's very important that with all that happened, we recognise this was God's plan, this was God's promise to this people. They were coming right on the edge of the promise of God. That's why they travelled all the way through the wilderness. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. For each, from each ancestral tribe, send one of the, its leaders. And so Moses command, command, sorry, the Lord commanded Moses to send them out from the desert of Paran, all of them were leaders of the Israelites, and these are their names. We'll avoid that passage, that bit, and we go down to verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees or not? Do the best to bring back some of the fruits of the land. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went towards Lebo. Hamath, sorry, Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahamin, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built several years before Zor in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eskol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here it is, here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified, very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. 
The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, descendants of Anak, come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Uh, the same to them. Okay, remember, God had promised them the land. This is a summary. God has promised them this land, this promised land. That is in no doubt. Uh, he sent spies into the land. Why? Maybe to test their faith. They needed to take account of what they were going to. And we need to do that. We're not going blindly to the school. We're, we're counting the cost. We're seeing what's involved. Okay. But we're looking to, to God's promise. Some only saw the problems and rebelled. Some saw the fulfilment of the promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they saw the problems as well, but they trusted God. Unfortunately, it wasn't many who trusted God. God has told us that uh, a larger venue is one of the keys uh, to growth. And he's made Briary School available to us. I do believe that. We tried schools in the centre of town. Um, in theory, they were willing to have us, but no one would open up for us on a Sunday. And so, kind of tentatively, we went out to, to Briary. The same uh, answer came back from them. But we've been able to uh, negotiate terms under which um, we, we can open up and, and lock up afterwards. And we're aware that it's going to be costly in terms of hard work, time and finance. And it's a test of faith uh, because God has spoken. We don't always like tests of faith, do we? Uh, we like everything clear-cut and worked out beforehand. But if you're slightly apprehensive, and we might go in our minds, well, will it work? Will we see more people coming because of that? Well, it's a test of faith. We can't guarantee that in hard and fast terms, but God has spoken and we need to respond to that. The school is part of the Green Hill Estate, as I mentioned, and uh, familiar to many of the residents, and this will be our focus, not the premises. When I first started to think about the school, uh, quite naturally you think about the practicalities. You know, will we fit in there? Do they have adult chairs? Uh, how, how can we open it? Um, what are we going to, you know, how are we going to arrange the instruments? transport, all these practical things. You know, what would the acoustics be like? Will it be nice to worship in there? But the more I've thought about it, I've seen these streets after street after street of this Green Hill estate. And I believe that soon after we've moved in, God is going to help us to make the people who live there our focus, not the niceties of, of, of worshipping in a school. I think that's going to be very, very important. So, in a week's time, we're going to have a special offering. We've invited you to give to this cause next Sunday. And how we give, the way we give, 
I believe, will depend on whether we have caught the vision of what we're doing. If you haven't caught the vision, or if you're not prepared for the challenge, I believe it will dampen your enthusiasm to give next Sunday. So the important thing, have we caught the vision that God is calling us to this venture? And are we prepared to put our lives on the line uh, for the thing that God is leading, leading us to? The Bible talks a lot about money, uh, and often um, it's, it's in a warning. You know, the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, money is deceitful, we're told uh, in the parable of the sower. Uh, so sometimes money uh, is give, given to us as a warning. You cannot serve God and money. But there's a lot about money in the Old Testament and to some degree in the New Testament about offerings, about giving to God. Uh, and we know and, and under the Old Testament law, they were, the Israelites were required to give 10% not of their, just their money, but their produce. Um, this was a legal requirement of them because it was given to the Levites, the priestly family who were serving them. They had no inheritance, the priestly family, so others supported them. Now, they were not told how much specifically, but it was in proportion to their income, uh, and it was, they were said to give a tithe, which is a tenth. But there were also special offerings during that time, over and above, uh, their tithe on special occasions. And um, th that would be true also uh, in the New Testament. Now the amount of money is never mentioned, how much we should give. And we're not saying to you, this is how much you should give, it is other than that we would like to raise at least £2,000. But what is emphasised is the heart attitude of the giver. Th this is of absolute paramount importance because God does not want us to give grudgingly in any way. Uh, he want, he's looking for a generous heart. In uh, 2 Corinthians, we read this. The, the, setting, uh, the, the setting is that um, the Apostle Paul, having come from the Jerusalem church, was going round to the other churches in Asia, uh, pointing out that the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering. There was a famine. And would they please give to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? Um, he went first to Macedonia and he reports that people gave out of their poverty. How, how they did that? But they, they gave joyfully. They, they pleaded with him uh, for the joy and the privilege of giving. But now he's talking to the Corinthians and he's, he's encouraging them to give. He says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has determined in his heart to give. I think that's an important statement. We, we could give and say, how much money we've got left over this month? Yeah, okay, let's put that in. Let's, we'll, we'll put that in the envelope, that'll be fine. Okay. But here is a bit of heart searching, that we open up our hearts to God and we say to God, how much shall we give? How much shall we give to this work? And I would encourage you to do that. If your couples pray together and say to them, how much should we give, Lord? Not just the left leftovers, the fag ends, 
of our money if we happen to have a bit left over at the end of the month. But what is God uh, calling us to do? So he says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart, not off the top of his head, but in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and the God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, in every good work. I want to finish by reading quite a long passage from 1 Chronicles 29. It's about King David's desire to build a temple for the Lord. King David in his reign had amassed great wealth and he really had it in his heart that to do away with the, the tabernacle that was brought through the wilderness, a, 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 a temporary building, and have a permanent building for work, the worship of God, a temple for God. And I'm sure God approved of that. But what God said to him was, uh, you're not to build this because you're a warrior, you're a man who spilt much blood, but your son will build it. That didn't stop David gathering all the materials necessary uh, to build this amazing temple. Now, we are not called to build a physical temple. We're called to build the house of God. Right? And in 1 Peter, you can read about that. And people who are added to the house of God are considered as living stones, with Jesus as the foundation, the chief cornerstone. And it's a building that rises up uh, to the praise and glory of God. But as I read this, what I want you to do is try and take your mind away from the huge um, quantity of riches that are mentioned. It's, it's absolutely overwhelming. But try and catch the heart of the people and the joy that they find in doing this, in giving to God's work. So 1 Chronicles and uh, 29. The king, then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for, for the, the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colours, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. All of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the fine work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? And this is how they consecrated themselves. Then the leaders of the families and the officers of the tribes of Israel, at the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave towards the work of the temple of, of God.
gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of gold, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willingness, the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. It's true, if God shows you what to give, and you give it, you can do it. If you a joy in giving what he's shown you to give. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted over head, as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power. Exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Now, even though they had such riches and were able to do this, this is what David says. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And that's true for us. What we have is we hold it as stewards. We hold it in trust for God. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, and we, as were our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all the abundance that we have provided for the building, building your temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our father Abraham, Isaac and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. In other words, may they always be generous. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure uh, for, for which I have provided. David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they pray, all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low, fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. So did you catch... That the air of dedication of the people, uh, their, the way they dedicated, they gave freely, and it was a great celebration. They loved it. They just loved being part of it. Um, a number of you have been to the Stonely Bible Week in years past, uh, and this will also apply to some who have been to the Brighton Conference, but I bet you won't forget the evening, usually a Thursday evening, when the offering is taken up. Okay, and we're encouraged to give to the work of New Frontiers, which was to do with church planting, apostolic uh, extension, and so on. And they had two large tubs right down at the beginning of the at the front of the building. And at Stonely, this represented thousands of people. And uh, we were asked to come out in order, 
uh, down to the front, put our gift in and go back to our seat. But we did it with dancing and celebration. The band struck up. They were high-power <laughs> praise songs. And everybody was absolutely delighted that they were able to take part in this giving. It was a joy to give. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. And so we need to think about that ourselves. How are we going to approach this offering? Is it going to be the fag end of our money? Or are we going to allow God to search our hearts and come with a joyful heart to give to the Lord? Because it's about transforming lives. This is what it's about. It's not just that we have another building. The aim is that we transform lives in the midst, where we're in the midst of this people. So I'll leave that with you. Don't forget to come with your envelope next week. We'll have a special time. It won't be put in the main offering. We'll have a special time. And maybe you will come forward with singing and dancing to put your offering uh, in a box or whatever we find. But let's pray that, that God uh, will help us to do that with a wholeheartedly and with a full heart. Father God, thank you for the way that when you direct your people to give, Lord, it ceases to be a chore or a threat. It becomes a joy. Father, we want to enter into that joy. Will you help us? Will you speak to us during this week, Lord? And uh, Lord, who tell us to give? And we'll trust you that if that is stretching us a bit, then you will be faithful. So, Lord, we commend it to you, our God and our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.